Welcome to the Notion Podcast. This is Reimagining. Hi, I'm Paul. I'm with Stephen, as always, still for Reimagining. And today we go back to a topic close to episode one of the series, Hospitality and Travel, but with a different angle, though. I don't know about you, Stephen, but I'm really curious to learn more about how Triptease and Charlie are doing, because as a big traveler myself, usually, you know, I, I fly 200,000 miles a year and I'm getting targeted these days a lot by hotels <laughs> that usually have my custom and I guess they want me back or something. So I'm getting a lot of emails. So can you introduce us to our guest, Stephen, please? Yeah, you're, you're right. It is very much going back to the beginning, isn't it? With a conversation with Richard Balter at Muse, who I know Charlie knows well. Our next guest is Charlie Osman. He's the founder and chief tease at Triptease. Triptease is effectively a business that's dedicated to helping hotels around the world drive direct bookings and really to compete and maybe beat the big OTAs in terms of bidding for their own brand and their own customers. You know, clearly the travel and hotel industry has been hit really hard by the current crisis. So it's going to be fascinating to hear about Charlie's journey over the last few months. So, um, Charlie, welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And I think it's almost five years since we invested in the business. And um, we met actually before you even took money from Notion Capital. So it's been good to see your journey and, and looking forward to this conversation. So let's jump straight in. What we're talking to founders about is their experience through the current pandemic. And I just wonder when, you know, given your insights into the world of hospitality, when and how did you realize the significance of the coronavirus crisis? <laughs> I guess there were different realizations at different moments in time. So to give you a bit of a setup, we have offices in New York, London, Barcelona, and Singapore, and we have a growing business in Asia. And so in February, we were due to run our sort of annual hotel direct booking conference in Bangkok. We pick a different city in Asia every year. And that was something we've been planning all year and we were very much looking forward to. So as we were coming towards that in January and the preparation was happening, we were starting to hear hoteliers who weren't comfortable to travel to Thailand, hotels who are customers in other Asian cities in Hong Kong, which had already been hit by riots and then was being hit quite hard by people not wanting to travel to China or any Chinese territories and then also um, other countries. So we could feel the impact on our customers in Asia quite early. And we had this big sort of decision to make around this large event that was you know, 400 to 500 hotels, hoteliers gathering together in Thailand. And I remember, you know, in Europe, some of my European colleagues were a little bit like, well, I don't really want to travel to Asia. I don't know if we should do it. Um, I don't want to go and get this virus. And so I got very obsessed quite early on with tracking every single day. My day would start with looking at every country's tests and coronavirus cases, what was happening, was that increasing daily or not? And I very quickly could see this pattern across Asia, which was a country would start to get cases. The cases would rise rapidly. So each day they might end up with, say, up to 10% growth on yesterday's cases. And then as soon as they kind of hit that level, it would only be a few more days and then the numbers would start dropping. And they'd hit this sort of 10% growth rate by day. And then you'd slowly see it go down to 5%, 3%. And then basically the countries would come out of it. And I saw this pattern again and again through these Asian countries. And so in fact, in February, 
what I felt was very confident that this was all being handled very well by the governments it was hitting and that you know, coronavirus was being perhaps blown out of proportion in my mind in terms of the number of people it was actually affecting at that stage and the impact it was having on their lives. So yeah, at first, I guess I realized the significance on Asian travel, but I certainly didn't get the global significance at that stage. And being a gung-ho entrepreneur and particularly being a company and a brand that's very well known standing up for hoteliers, standing up for the little guy. I felt it was really important to go to Thailand. So I went and I, I did the event. We didn't do the full scale event. We made it a smaller one, but I felt it was important that I showed my face and that I was there promoting tourism in Thailand and that people could still travel to the country because I looked at the statistics and I was definitively more likely to die on my way to Heathrow Airport than I was to catch coronavirus, let alone get harmed by it in Thailand. So that was, I guess, our first brush with it in January, February, and it felt like it was going to be fine. And then everything changed, right? A month on from that, in the first week of March, we really felt the hit in Europe. And it moved from being this sort of small scale, well, small scale in terms of geographic scale, sort of hit in Italy and bits of Spain to suddenly taking over the Western world as we know it and having a much larger impact. That was sort of stage two of the realization. So just wonder that stage two, I wonder how did it feel when you started to realize that this was obviously going to have an impact on your family and your business? Well, to be honest, I was still looking quite carefully at the statistics of proportions of people it hit. And I'm rather a statistician at heart. And so even in March and April, proportionally, statistically, it was a very low risk impact, for example, on people in my family. So I've got to admit that that wasn't on top of my agenda. The thing that really hit us was, from the business point of view, one, obviously, a lot of our customers and hoteliers were starting to close and see cancellations. And so that was a very stressful situation for them and for our team. You know, they had bookings, they expected customers to come in, and then suddenly, literally over the space of two or three days, they saw half of their customers cancel their bookings. And so that was very, very scary for them. And then the other thing was in terms of us as a business, in 2018, we went through a bit of a sort of a revolution, bringing out new products, making quite a lot of significant changes to the organization to get us back onto a faster growth track. 2019, the goal we stated at the beginning of the year is can we you know, grow the business 50% this year? And to be honest, at the beginning of 2019, we didn't really think we had much of a shot of doing that, but we managed and we had an extraordinary run in 2019. The entire company pulled together like I've never seen a group of people work together and we had you know, a great outcome and it was a massive year. One of the reasons for the growth and one of the sort of next steps was as we went into Q1 2020, we'd spent a lot of the funding that we'd raised from our last round and we were due to raise a Series C in April. So we'd done everything we needed to do in 2019 to get the growth to where it needed to be, to get the metrics to be what they needed to be for you know, a SaaS business. All of that was ready. A huge amount of effort had got into it. And then we'd been speaking to investors in Q1. We had really good positive feedback. And sort of in March, we were going down to a shortlist, planning to close on our round of financing. Those are the best laid plans of mice <laughs> and men. Huh? Along, along comes the, the scythe. So everything was going to plan. You know, startups go through funding cycles. And let's say your funding cycle usually will give you money that lasts you 18 months. So at any moment in time, there are startups who are running towards the end of their 18 months. And there are startups who are just beginning their next 18 months of funding. We were running towards the end of ours. You know, raising money in April for us was going to mean we raised the money and everything went as planned. We would have raised the next set of cash with another three months left in the bank. 
So what happened to us in March was we were speaking to a couple of investment banks. And we had these two that were pitching for our business on a Friday, saying why we should work with them and how they'd close around and how it'd be amazing and how wonderful they would be. And then on the Monday morning, they rang up both of them separately, having changed their tune over the weekend, which was kind of the weekend of realization. And they said, um, it's not going to happen. There's no way anyone's going to give anyone money. Forget everything we said on Friday. It's Monday. Everything changed over the weekend. If you want to raise in this climate for a travel business, you're going to take a hefty hit on the valuation and the terms. So basically, there was this extraordinary, I think it was actually a Friday evening where everything seemed to change in Western Europe. And we really felt it because our plans, which were so carefully and so well laid out ahead of us, suddenly had to change going from everything is tickety-boo, we're going to get the money we need exactly at the right time, to, oh my God, we might not be able to get any money or any money at good terms. Uh, and we're running out because we've only got you know three months left. And so it was a really stark evolution, I guess, on that, that Friday evening and over the weekend. Coming to terms with that is, is pretty difficult. I mean, obviously, as a founder, and particularly a startup founder, and particularly venture-backed, you know, you're used to turbulent times and dealing with with crises but how did you and and your leadership team come to terms with the presumably pretty fundamental changes you needed to make to your plans and your organization it's a surprising one because as i look back on it it was actually incredibly empowering if i'm honest maybe i should caveat that with the fact that you know we have a team made up of a variety of different people who we've selected to be part of a team because of the different ways they look at the world. Case in point, myself and my brother run the business between us mostly, and he is a more cautious first child, and I am a bit more entrepreneurially minded, gung-ho, everything's gonna be great, middle child. And so between us, we like to think we get balance. But for me anyway, I can give you some of my feelings. It was a little devastating because I felt we'd had such a great year and was gonna go beautifully. But at the same time, it was really empowering because the shift and the change was so sudden and so dramatic and so clear. It meant there was no time for thinking about, is this really going to be bad? Uh, how much action do we need to take? It was just blindingly obvious from that changing weekend that life had changed. And that meant that there was no time to waste on querying it and needing more data. We had the data we needed. We just now had to take action. So it was quite empowering from that sense because the clarity was just there. So we didn't really have time for commiserating. We only had time to take action and think about what the things were. And there were some very clear, very immediate actions, particularly around people and headcount. Some of them had, were things we discussed in the past. Well, maybe this department doesn't need to be quite this size. Maybe we haven't quite got the right fit in another area. And all of those decisions were able to be taken within a minute. And it just felt like, okay, we now need to change. Of all the companies that are going to get affected by people not traveling, we're at the... You're right at the sharp the end. Top. Yeah, we are at the sharp end. Thank you. And so we, we knew we had to take action. So, so we just immediately started making those plans. And then just talk us about that. Tell us a little bit about that plan and particularly that mind shift from kind of playing to win to, I guess, playing to survive, but probably playing to survive to then win, knowing you. Yeah, so I, I think it's probably fair to say that the playing to survive mindset actually just isn't me. That's not where my brain was really at any time in this because... I'm assumptive about that. I know we're going to survive. I know we have a great, glorious future ahead of us. I don't question that for one instant. James and our, our finance director, they were absolutely thinking about playing to survive and creating the financial plans and the headcount plans that would do that. And whilst they were busy, I guess, thinking that way, I was thinking, 
about the opportunity that lay in front of us. Because for about three years, we've been talking with to investors or to our advisors about the fact that we knew there had to be at some point a downturn. And the downturn, for whatever reason it would come, we had seen the impacts of previous downturns on the hotel industry. Hotels are kind of a peculiar beast. And we knew that the last downturn in 2008, the online travel agents, ExpediaBooking.com, had really grown in strength and power because the downturn had basically made the hotels have to turn to them in desperation. And so we'd been thinking for quite a few years about how we were going to evolve our product set, our pricing, our packaging to be ready to accelerate in the downturn. So actually when it happened, there were the immediate changes we had to make. And I personally then, you know, my headspace was very much thinking about, right, how can we now maximize this opportunity? Because we've been preparing for this and we think we're really well placed to grow market share significantly in a downturn. Now we've got to prove what we've been saying and what we've been planning and see if it can happen. So I guess the truth is amongst the senior team, we, we allocated different bits of our headspace to different tasks. So you know, James and Ashley very much owned the financial plan and owned the disaster planning and risk planning and therefore the decisions we had to make around that. And I was able to think about, okay, how do we make sure we really, we as a business come out of this stronger? Testament to the point you made about having a leadership team that thinks differently, that has different skills, different ways of, of addressing issues, because if you're all thinking the same, then it can become quite a spiral. With my previous co-founder, my previous business, Caroline, and I always used to say, if the two of us felt the same way about things, then we we only need one of us. That's a nice way of putting it. I like that. Well, let's talk a little bit about that kind of rebounding then. So we're putting together the financial plan. We're looking at the reorganization, but you're already starting to think about, you know, what are you going to do differently? Customers, your employees and, and the products you're building. And what did you start to, to consider as the kind of alternative strategy and future direction for the business? Yeah, so maybe I wouldn't normally go into this detail, but it might be interesting for your audience of SaaS entrepreneurs, just to bring out a little bit more about our industry. Hoteliers have to distribute their rooms and their inventory every night, their 100 rooms, if any of them go unsold, that's it. They've lost that revenue potential. So they really like to, to fill up as best they can if they're able to you know, hold a price point at the same time. So in a sense, hotels have two budgets. One budget is their marketing budget. They use that to run adverts online, meta search on Google and have a website. And the marketing budget, as with most companies, is finite. Every year they set that budget. This is where we're going to spend it and this is how much there is. The second budget, which doesn't belong to the marketing director, but usually belongs to the head of distribution or uh, maybe revenue manager, is the distribution budget. And by contrast, it is kind of infinite. So when a hotel gets a booking from Expedia, for example, they will pay 15 to 20% of the stay to that third party. When a hotel got empty rooms and they're desperate to fill them, then they basically say to the market, if you can fill me rooms, I will carry on paying you 15 to 20% till the cows come home. As long as I've got rooms that are empty, I'm going to happily keep on paying. Hence why I say that budget, in a sense, is infinite. So what happens in a downturn is that everybody gets nervous. We all get jitters and we freak out and we look for ways to cut money. And so the first budget that gets cut is the marketing budget. It was 100K. Guess what? Now it's 20K. So the hoteliers reduce the extent to which they're bringing people to book on their own direct website. At the same time, their rooms are emptier than ever before because we're in a downturn. And so they're turning to third parties and anyone they can, clamoring for business and saying, hey, forget paying 20%, I'll pay 25 or 30%. And so what happens is just at the moment when the hotels could get the best ROI ever from their marketing spend, and just at the moment when they could be the ones grabbing market share, what they do is they hand them into the hands of a third party 
And so in this downturn, we need to enable hotels to carry on marketing themselves without beefing up their third-party competitors for whom they compete with each individual booking online. So what it means is providing the hotels an ability to spend marketing dollars in a pay-on success basis, because really that's what the driver between these two budgets is. One is you're putting money out front if you're a hotelier on adverts, and the other one is you're only paying when a guest arrives or when someone's booked. And so we've been shifting and playing with our, our fees and the way we charge hotels in order to be able to deliver into the second bucket. I've not tried explaining that before in a podcast. I hope that that made sense. It did. Yeah. I mean, okay, I, good. I completely. And then one of the other fascinating, sorry, again, just because of the, because I think your audience might be interested, is one of the fascinating and interesting challenges that has made for us as a business over the last few years is as we've been working towards some performance spend capability, because that's what our market needs, our balance of pure play SaaS revenue to performance has been evolving. And most companies in this world are desperate to get away from performance into flat SaaS fees. But what we believe for our market and for our customers is actually there's a different balance is, is perfect. And so we've been trying to like navigate our way to this balance, but we also felt that it gave us a very strong hand in a downturn like this. And we'll see that I'll be able to report back to you by the end of the year. I'll look forward to that. So how does that then play out in terms of you know, product and strategy and people? That really had a big impact on the immediate go-to-market plans, the customers we target, the way we target them, the packaging and the pricing. And so we're testing different things still in different markets. And we're seeing great reception and great uptick. So we're already seeing that growth in market share that we were hoping for. It's still early in a sense in what's going to happen from COVID. What's the world economy going to look like? We'll wait before we draw a final conclusion, but certainly it's helped us in this time. And more importantly, it's helped a lot of our customers. They know, they can see their kind of, in a sense, sleepwalking into this problem they can see it happening right in front of their eyes in slow motion but they needed to have a way to purchase that would allow them to achieve their business goals and so hopefully that's what we've given it's interesting isn't it we've heard it a few times about how this crisis has accelerated changes that people were already seeing as you you said you've been looking towards this as a future strategy for yourselves and your customers for quite a while definitely is that so it was, i think it was satya nadala wasn't it he said that microsoft have seen in two months two years worth of innovation shift and adoption it certainly feels like it's doing that i think we've also i heard your interview with richard from news and i think it's definitely true that whilst there will be a segment of the market who stop everything and they don't want new suppliers and they don't want to test new things and they're scared and they're going to just wait. And that's one segment and that's a perfectly understandable strategy. There's another segment of the market that is saying, well, I just got to throw everything out right now because I've been living with this second rate systems for too long. And if ever there was a time to make a change, this is it. And so we're seeing you know, a market that's kind of bifurcating into those that say there's a new normal, now's the time to take action, and others who are perhaps a bit more head in the sand. So it's been fascinating, and, and, and no doubt it will keep evolving. How do you see the industry playing out over the next few years? The hospitality industry, there's been a lot of consolidation. So the big brands, Marriott, Hilton, IHG, they've been buying up smaller brands. I suspect that will continue because there will be a lot of mid-market brands who perhaps have been turning down those interested offers in the past who have found themselves in a harder time. And so I'm sure there'll be some more consolidation in the next year or two because the big brands still have relatively you know, healthy balance sheets and they'll be able to go out and, and make acquisitions. When it comes to digital marketing, there's a few really interesting trends. So we've been major advocates for direct booking, getting guests to book on the hotel website for years. 
And what we've seen through the crisis, completely unexpected for us going into the year, was that the importance of hygiene and also just understanding what's open at a hotel. Are the restaurants open? Are they half open? Are the buffets open? All those things. The single best source of truth for what's happening at a hotel and do I feel I can trust it and do I want to stay there? And the single source of truth is ultimately the hotel website. And so more and more guests are going to the hotel website before they make a booking decision. They won't just go and make a decision by visiting an OTA website like booking.com. And so in a sense, the hygiene concerns and the shutdown concerns are increasing reasons for consumers to book direct and to be on the hotel website. We kind of see this as a real watershed moment and opportunity for hotels. And ultimately, I do actually think it's going to bifurcate. There are hotels where it's really clear they've got their they've got their stuff together, they know exactly what they're going to do, they're being strategic about this, and they are going to make the most of the opportunity. And they're going to use this as a moment to lean the table back towards themselves compared to the OTAs. But equally, the OTAs will carry on providing value and doing a great digital marketing job. So they're not going to disappear or anything. But there's basically we see the hotels that take control and the hotels that don't take control. And generally, the ones that aren't taking control, well, if they're leaving their distribution, they're in sales and marketing to a third party, they're really setting themselves up to be commoditized and in a, in a dangerous place in the future. But I'm wondering if the sour experience of getting refunds, you know, you know that if you directly deal with a hotel, probably that refund route is much faster that you have to deal with an OTA or any travel agent, basically a middleman. So do you think that also will influence the customer to go directly to a hotel in the future? A great question. I saw some research on this just this week. Um, <laughs> 3,000 American guests and they booked either by an OTA or a hotel or Airbnb before the crisis. They'd had very different experiences with cancellations and then their likelihood or propensity to book via a different channel in the future. This is claimed research rather than like what actually people are going to do in the future, but certainly the experience was quite different and it was different between the OTAs. I think that guests who booked on booking.com had had a better cancellation experience than those on Expedia um, in this survey. Airbnb of the third parties had done particularly well. But yes, hotels did come out proportionally better because if you had a direct connection and a direct relationship with the hotel, then you can have a proper conversation about it. But equally, there are people who will say, I liked and trusted the OTA I booked with more than an individual hotel I've never met before. It's not every single hotel came out. Yeah, of course. You know, yeah, fair places, enough. Right? It does vary, but there's no question. In dark times or times of panic, having a relationship directly, so you haven't got someone in the middle saying, oh, well, it's their fault, it's not my fault. Yeah. Charlie, I know how much you care about your people, and I've known many of them over the years. Just tell us a little bit about the organizational restructure you had to go through. There were some pretty tough times and also some definite lessons and mistakes that we made during that. So as I said earlier, the impact on us as a business was very clear very early, not just because we're in travel, but also because the fundraising implications. And ultimately, it meant that we needed to become masters of our own destiny financially very quickly. We had to go from financial plans that were about investment to a financial plan where we were going to be profitable. And we needed to do that within a matter of months. There's you know, no two ways about it. Our single largest expense by a long way are people. There was just no way we were going to get to profitability without making cuts. That was very apparent right from the beginning. And whilst the decision, in a sense, from a business point of view, was very clear, as soon as you, you move from that to, okay, so we know we need to reduce headcount by 25% into, okay, 
where are we going to do that and what roles across the business are going to be going and what are the implications then on team members you know that was i mean i can't think of another word for it but devastating we'd seen this group come together and work so hard and so tremendously and successfully for over the sort of 18 months two years to achieve what we did in 2019 We'd achieved so much more than we expected and everyone had pulled their finger out for it. And then suddenly to be having to let people go because of this extraordinary circumstance, it was completely devastating. And we didn't do it without mistake, right? I think that the immediacy and clarity of what we needed to do meant that we went very fast. As soon as it was clear this was going to transform our fundraising, we could see instantly 20% of roles that we needed to cut. And we, we ran a process and a system internally. We defined what roles. Then we looked at the different people in those roles and we went through you know, the standard HR best practice, speaking to managers, scoring individuals, and then taking the decisions. In a sense, that first cut, rationally, it was a very clear cut decision. We knew that a recession would come. We're going to be hit hardest because we're travel. We will take action immediately the rest of the world and the rest of the world's economy probably won't be affected for six months, right? I used to run a recruitment business and in recruitment, you could always feel recessions coming early because it was one of those, you know, slow down industries. So we felt quite strongly that actually the best and fairest thing we can do is make cuts as fast as possible. It's far better to let people go whilst the rest of the market is still relatively buoyant, other people are hiring, and so we made selections and decisions very quickly and we let the individuals know. I personally called every person who we had, and it had sadly had to be calls because of you know, lockdown. I called each individual and then I called every single other person in the company who was staying to talk through it and you know, why we're doing it and everything else. It was incredibly emotional and very upsetting and, and not a day I'll ever forget again. We were able with those people, as I say, to let them go fast. They've all found new jobs very quickly. You know, we, we hire great people and we always felt confident that they'd very quickly find new roles. A bunch of them ended up with higher salaries, perhaps in roles that were better suited to them and in a better place. We were able to be relatively generous uh, despite our need to get to profitability. We could be quite generous with that loss in terms of letting them go and helping them and all that stuff. That was phase one. With hindsight, we acted too fast. Because it was so clear what we had to do, we acted before any of the governments started furlough schemes or even talked about the fact that they were going to provide support. And so, in fact, what we very sadly had to do it twice was even more devastating and destabilizing because the second round then was a a larger group of people, which under European law meant that you have to run through one month process of notification people and looking at alternatives. And there's a very appropriately long and appropriately drawn out process to ensure that people aren't being let go for the wrong reasons or in the wrong way or without due consideration. However, it was incredibly frustrating because I would argue it's a very inappropriate legislation for times like this and for companies like ours. You know, there's legislation that's put out in the world to protect people who are less fortunate than oneself or in companies that might act less scrupulously. But when you know, as a business, we now need to cut not 25%, but all the way 50% in total, you know there's no alternative. And that's like, black and white, blindingly clear, then doing what we had to do, which was notify everybody whose role might be affected, tell them they were going to go through a redundancy process with the world kind of blown up in the meantime. We couldn't tell them for sure if their role was going to be made redundant and they were going to be let go in a month or if they were going to be kept. And that not knowing for a month was actually maybe the worst thing. 
we had to do it. It's appropriate and it's right to follow the legislation, but it, it was completely inappropriate for our circumstance because what we then had was obviously a workforce who'd seen one cut, and this is classic. Everybody has you know seen and read and heard this before. You never do it twice. The workforce had seen one cut. They knew we were going to have another one. And then they had this limbo of not knowing who was in and who was out. And it was a limbo that we couldn't really address because we had to go through the system and the process. That was a really horrible time and very hard for motivation, not to mention the fact that, you know, our engineers who every day of the year, all year round are being phoned up, right, by Google, Facebook, Apple, Peloton, whoever happens to be, desperately trying to recruit them, are suddenly thinking to themselves, why am I in the travel industry? So there's a whole bunch of like unfortunate circumstances. If I could do it again, we would have done it once. We would have been slower to the first decision. So yeah, it was... It was a horrific experience and, and also this kind of feeling of lack of closure, right? Not have a, you know, a leaving party. It feels like a small thing, but was massive, really painful because you couldn't really celebrate people's experiences and time and effort in the firm face to face and thank them. That just added more pain. So yeah, it was, it, it, altogether from a human people point of view, it's been a horrible experience because everything is made more painful by the fact that you're working from home in a circumstance that might not be perfect. Pretty, pretty horrific. It's hard for the people who, you know, who are having to find new jobs and who were in this sort of not knowing period. I can imagine the kind of agony that, that many people felt all around. I mean, I, I can certainly attest to the fact that I've seen many of your organisation go on some amazing, some amazing jobs because you had great people. I, I'm just wondering how, you know, we're a few months in now. How are the employees feeling? What's the engagement like and the alignment? So we were quick to act in a number of different ways. And one of the core ones was taking financial action and rolling out new products and offers and hitting certain targets. And and that has certainly helped, right? We're in a really good place now. We've got through that pain of not knowing and lack of clarity about roles and who's staying, and who's going. And so we're back on the mission and we have been now for three months. So we're through that pain. So ultimately everybody, just as you do, you pick yourself up, you dust yourself off and you carry on. And now we're in a really exciting place again, where we can see lots of opportunities ahead of us. We still need to properly have closure on, I think, organizationally and individually on all our friends that you know we long to work with again and there have been some people who we were able to bring back which has been wonderful so because we we took the actions we did and because also of the government support from different countries that's been you know definitely helpful but you know i think everyone understands what it is right we, we've all been rocked by this um, unexpected externality and we just uh, have to get on with it pick yourself up dust yourself down start all over again so how are you feeling now? So, well, as I relive the horror and trauma, I don't feel so good right now because you know, I care a lot about these people. They gave so much to the business and to their colleagues. Okay, broadly, the truth is, is there's still a lot of not knowing. There are still a lot of our customers, a lot of hotels who are closed. So we can't speak to them and we don't know how they are and we don't know their plans. There are a lot of question marks and a lot of challenges to work through in terms of how we help them support them as they some of them will now not open for the year because they missed their summer season and you know what the best way to support them to get back on their feet but you know i'm rather a glass half full person and we see some great opportunities in the future covid forced some decisions that had been sort of lingering in the back of our mind forced us to take them very quickly and swiftly. We've reduced some of our product scope. We've reduced the focus of what people are trying to build for the next quarter. We're leaner. That's kind of empowering. And I feel really good about the things we are focused on. So there's still a way to go and happily speak to you again in six months, see where we get to. But I feel like 
the team are back on fire as much as they ever have been. Reasons to be optimistic. And you are an extraordinarily resilient, resourceful and optimistic entrepreneur. So I'm excited to see what you guys achieve in the coming months and years. And, and yeah, that's a good idea. We should have this conversation again. Maybe this time next year to revisit them yeah. all. And Charlie, it's been a fascinating conversation and you've been an amazing guide to what was obviously a very emotional experience. So very kind of you to share it with us. I think the, the danger with entrepreneurial stories is too often we only read them at the end when everyone's had their success and you don't quite get the grit and the pain of the in-between phase. But there's been a lot of that this year. 2020 has yeah. been a challenging one. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Charlie. Thank you.